Hello and welcome to this episode of the LCN Legal Podcast, bringing you expert views and analysis of the legal aspects of transfer pricing compliance. Our focus is always on real-world, practical insights that you can apply in your everyday work. In this episode, we talk again to LCN Legal's co-founder, Paul Sutton, about contractual allocation of risk in transfer pricing. This area is often misunderstood and, as Paul points out, functional analysis is merely the starting point. On its own, it's not sufficient to delineate transactions for transfer pricing purposes. Paul also gives examples of specific contractual clauses that can deal with risk and how these relate to each other, and, looking beyond the contractual terms, outlines three other key factors which must be taken into account. We hope you find the episode thought-provoking and useful. Paul, welcome back. Great to be here. So uh, today you're here to talk about the contractual allocation of risk in transfer pricing. Let's start with the, the the most basic question of all. What is risk for the purposes of TP? We all understand what it means in our everyday lives, but in, in transfer pricing terms, what is risk? Yes, it's a great question. And, and here I'm going to basically paraphrase what's in the OECD TP guidelines. So risk is the effect of uncertainty on a business. And that can mean uncertainty of upside, is the business gonna achieve the profits that it wants to achieve, but also the uncertainty of downside in terms of liabilities and adverse occurrences. So that's that's what we're talking about here, who bears what risks. Okay, so what's the role of contracts here? So again, I think we, we need to go back to first principles. So we're applying the arm's length principle. What does that mean? It's about the pricing of intercompany transactions by reference to comparable, in other words, similar transactions between related parties. So that, that's, that's what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to create and document transactions between related parties and price them by reference to how unconnected parties would price the equivalent transactions. And where contracts come in is that they're absolutely key to defining or delineating is the word that the TPG uses. So delineating what the transaction is, including who bears what risks. So just to give a couple of examples from third party life and and from uh, intercompany transactions. So one example would be appointing estate agents or realtors to sell your, your home. So that is a service provision. And a service provision could, for example, be priced and charged for on a time and materials basis. So you pay for the time um, that the relevant individuals spend. Or it could be priced on a basis that the the agent actually takes the risk, so it only gets paid if the sale completes. Yeah. And it's such a fundamental distinction in terms of those, those two possible ways of structuring the transaction that it's actually meaningless to try and price the transaction on a comparable basis without being clear what the deal is. So this, this is why it's so fundamental. And of, of course, I've given a binary option, you know, time and materials, or is it payment on results? So contingent on that, that outcome. But in third party life, there are obviously combined versions. For example, if you go up a level and talk about corporate finance professionals who are engaged to sell a business, sell a company, they may be paid on a combination of those two methods. So they might be a a monthly retainer plus performance fee on the actual sale. 
And those different elements could be determined um, on different bases. In other words, the higher the monthly retention, the lower the risk that the corporate finance broker is taking, and therefore probably the lower the percentage success fee. So th these are just levers that can be used in terms of defining and therefore pricing the transaction. How so does this relate to the functional analysis? You know, uh, the, the functional analysis sets out who does what. Is that kind of the same as what, what you're talking about here? Or, or yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's a really interesting point. And if you take those two examples, the, 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 the real estate or the corporate finance broker, when you look at a functional analysis, who does what, it's actually the same activities that are being performed in those scenarios, you know, by the broker or by the agent. They're doing the same thing. They've got the same skills and experience and, and, and so on. It's just that the um, the commercial deal is very different and therefore the pricing is very different. So it's, it's but for me, it's a, it's a great example of how functionalysis is really important, who does what, um, but it's just the start of the story. It's only part of the story in defining the transaction for transfer pricing purposes. So I'd, I'd just like to mention one other example, which is um, the classic one of R&D services, say, say in intergroup. In other words, where you've got one entity which is carrying on R&D services, say it's developing a, a, a new uh, new type of software or, or, or something like that. So one of the economically relevant risks here is, well, who bears the risk that the, the outcome of this R&D activity is a complete turkey and produce, it produces nothing valuable? You know, does the service provider get paid anyway? Or does the service provider actually bear that risk or join in that risk of that economic downside or or or, or failure to achieve an expected opportunity? And, and again, the definition of that relationship, what is the commercial transaction, is fundamental to pricing. The contracts aren't the whole story, are they? It's not as simple as saying, well, what, what's written in the contract? You know, what, what, what are the other factors that, that are coming to play here? Right, yes. So, so from a transfer pricing perspective, there are three other main factors that need to be looked at alongside the terms of the contract. And those are financial capacity to bear risk, control of risk, and conduct of the, of the party. So I'll, I'll just briefly talk about each of those in turn. So one of them, the first one is financial capacity to bear risk. So just to give an, an obvious example, uh, from the street, if if you like, you know, we're we're all used to signing up insurance policies, and let's say we want uh, buildings insurance, so in, in to cover us in case our uh, home gets burnt down, um, we would happily pay an insurance premium to an insurance company, but would we enter into an equivalent transaction with just someone off off the street? The answer is, of course, we wouldn't, because we would have serious doubts as to whether that person would have the financial capacity to immediately meet that claim if it was if it was justified. So just in the same way, um, from a transfer pricing perspective, it is meaningless, or, or put it another way, it has no substance for a, a contractual arrangement to give the impression that one party is bearing a risk if that party couldn't actually bear that risk or pay out if that risk materialized. So that, that's, that's the first point. Yeah. Second point is control of risk. In other words, um, it's all very well for a contract to say that one party will will assume the risk, but again, that only has substance. It only makes sense if that entity has the capacity 
or the ability or the competence to decide whether or not to take on that risk, how to mitigate that risk, how to monitor it, and, and, and so on. So, so, so there needs to be that alignment as well in order for that arrangement to, to make sense. And, and the third and final point is, is, is conduct. So just like with any contract, any contractual arrangement, if the contract is saying one thing and the parties are doing something on a day-to-day -day basis which is completely contradictory or contradicting that contract, then obviously the natural thought is, well, this contract is just is just a sham. It doesn't make sense. It's, they're, they're just trying to present something which is not the case. So just to give one example, if you think about the relationship between a principal and a distributor, so principal supplying goods to a distributor for uh, for resale, um, one relevant risk is product liability risk. So are there defects or issues with a product which cause loss to third parties, which therefore give rise to potential exposure to, to claims? The question is, well, how is that risk actually dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis? For example, if there is defective stock and the end customer um, returns it or makes a claim, what, what is the actual conduct of the parties as regards, is, is it the principle just reselling or sorry, resupplying those goods for free, if, if you like, and therefore the distributor doesn't bear that cost, yeah. or is it some other arrangement? So that's that's the other kind of reality check, if you if you like, to the contractual assumption of risk. So what we're saying is that those four aspects, contractual allocation of risk, capacity to assume risk, control, and conduct need to be aligned. And with regard to the, the the middle two, the financial capacity and the control of the risk, there's kind of a, a legal and governance angle in there as well, isn't there? Because directors have a, have, have a duty to only enter into contracts which the entities they control are properly able to um, support and follow through on. And there can be severe consequences if they if they don't. Ab ab absolutely, yeah. So, so um, and I, I would describe this as as the parallel universe of of. The legal way of, of looking at things which is absolutely if you're a director you're a director of the relevant legal entity you can't say well i was just following orders from group and i signed this contract and and actually i didn't agree with it so, sorry you know you're an office holder you're on the hook if you don't agree with it and if it's material enough you might need to seriously consider your position so yes ab absolutely um and it just so happens that that's or the rules applying to that parallel universe of corporate governance from a legal perspective happen to coincide with the transfer pricing world or the transfer pricing universe and uh, how the OECD TP guidelines look at risk. So um, anyone who's uh, read the LCN website or indeed some of our social posts will know that the timing is, is a critical point here. Risk it requires uncertainty. Uncertainty means you have to be talking about the future. There's no risk when something's already happened. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. Absolutely. So um, the TP guidelines are, are very clear in saying that you can't allocate risk after the event. Therefore, you can't contractually allocate risk um, after the risk outcomes are known. Um, and therefore, um, in order to have a robust transfer pricing position, um, the contract needs to be, sorry, the, the transaction needs to be delineated in advance, needs to be implemented in advance by appropriate agreements. Um, and as I think many listeners will, will 
already know this is not just about transfer pricing it's also about things like uh, corporation tax deductions and whether that expense will be allowed or not so in many cases uh, the existence of a prior contract is a precondition to the allowability of the expense deduction um, for the relevant entity so going back to the contracts and how contracts deal with risk what kinds of contractual clauses frequently deal with this issue yeah, so, so th this this is a really interesting question. And unfortunately, when you're reviewing a contract or creating a, a contract, you need to look at a number of different clauses because it tends to be spread out. Um, so some example. So one is defining the duties of the party. So what are the contractual obligations of the relevant entities or parties to the intercompany contract? So just to give an example, if it was outsourcing of IT support services, what is the what is the actual obligation or duty of the service provider? Is it just to perform actions? So, you know, to make available um, certain software or certain platforms, certain personnel or whatever, or is it to actually achieve results? In other words, service levels. So that's, that is duty defining. Second category is, is about warranties. So what promises are the relevant parties making as regards um the the condition of the goods or the standard of the services so for example supply of goods are, are, are there contractual warranties that the goods will be free of defects or will comply with with certain specifications a related one is indemnities so for example product liability claims is there a contractual indemnity for example from the principal to the distributor which says and by the way if anyone makes a claim against you because the products are uh, defective, we will just re reimburse you on a pound for pound or dollar for dollar basis. So so, so we'll, we'll, we'll cover you on that. So th those are all pretty obvious. Other variants can be buyback clauses. So we've talked on this, talked about this in, in various articles and, and other episodes. So um, for example, inventory risk for a distributor, the risk that a distributor may buy stock, but not be able to sell it. A buyback clause means that the principal says, don't worry, we'll just buy back any unsold stock at cost. That's a key clause for allocating risk. Related to that would be limitation and exclusion clauses. Um, and so that may look like caps on liability. So is, is there a, a limit on the amount of claims or an exclusion of certain types of claims like economic loss? Um, and then finally, there's just the financial terms and pricing. Um, so that would factor into the examples that we were talking about before about the remuneration of an agent. You know, is it is it just is the pricing based on time and materials? Is it a success fee? What is it? Or it could be a guaranteed outcome for a distributor in a target margin arrangement. So is there actually a contractually guaranteed outcome in terms of achieving that margin or not? And whether that's clauses in there or not makes a massive difference to what is the transaction and therefore what would be comparable comparable with it. So um, those, those are just some examples. Unfortunately, as I said, you can't just look at a single clause. You need to look at everything in the round. So for example, you might have what looks like an all singing, all dancing indemnity. But if there's a general clause that uh, includes a cap on liability of the principle that says, well, actually, you can claim under the indemnity, but only up to the price of the goods sold or something like that, then you've immediately changed 
in an extremely material way the actual um, commercial effect of the arrangements so it does need to be looked at in the round yeah the whole thing needs to work together well we've drilled into the the detail there um let's just sort of take a take a step back when you're drafting uh icas and looking at the contractual allocation of risk what exactly are you trying to achieve yes yeah, so, so as, as we always say it's it's starting with the end in mind um the end for our present purposes for transfer pricing compliance is being able to um respond to tp inquiries tax audits um competently and robustly and and quickly and in order to achieve that there needs to be alignment between the transfer pricing policies uh the transfer pricing documentation the contracts uh, the conduct capacity to assume risk control of of risk so that that's what we're we're trying to create is is that solid substance and therefore the ability to explain justify demonstrate the transfer pricing uh, positions and hopefully head off any further inquiries so that is if you like the end result and if we work backwards from that end result what, what does it mean it means that we need to design and delineate the transactions at the outset in a way which reflects that intended end result and that means that the contractual design or the legal design of the transaction needs to go hand in hand with the transfer pricing analysis um and then of, of course once once that design has been uh finalized or, or established um and it is checked for uh for alignment from the perspective of other stakeholders such as customers and VAT and, and, and so on that arrangement needs to be implemented that means the agreements need to be signed uh the, the the relevant operational systems need to be put in place um it needs to be actually worked it needs to be operated in, in practice and it needs to be maintained and kept up to date so as you know in this podcast we promise people real world practical insights so let's talk about your your, your day-to-day work do you often see mismatches between TP documentation and agreements? Is this a common problem? Um, yeah, um, unfortunately, we we see it all the time. Um, so one of the things we do is is health check reviews of intercompany agreements, and it's a really very simple process. So what we do is we select a sample agreement for a particular transaction type. For it could be appointment of limited risk distributors. We um, we look at a sample of an agreement actually in place within the group and we compare that against what the relevant transfer pricing policies or transfer pricing documentation says specifically including what the tp policies say about risks such as inventory risk uh, market risk credit risk and, and so on and very often when, when we do this, even for large groups with, with large legal departments, we find direct contradictions. And I think the part of the problem is just the, the lack of communication or lack of awareness, maybe. So this this is no criticism of, of the legal skills and abilities of the relevant lawyers there. It's just that they're not familiar with the task that they're being asked to achieve there. So we, we often see direct contradictions there. Um, we often see contracts being considered as an afterthought um and uh unfortunately often we saw we see uh transfer pricing policies which just have a functional analysis 
and with no mention even of the relevant risks in, involved. Um, and I guess the the the, the other um, issue or mismatch we we often see is is the commercial rationale point. In other words, uh, transactions which may look good on paper from a very high level sp- superficial basis, but actually when you drill down to the interest of the relevant parties, um, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and th- th- this can be a serious problem, can't it? Because you know, uh, one or two loose bricks can bring the whole structure coming down. You can find your whole TP position being rapidly dismantled by the tax authority. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. So, so it means that you you end up, or rather, the taxpayer ends up in a situation such as in Coca-Cola or Aspro or Sketches or whatever, where the purported transfer pricing policies and intercompany charges are entirely unsupported by the contractual reality of the contractual arrangements, either through absence of agreements or uh, direct mismatch between the terms of the agreements which are in place as compared to the TP policies. And of course, yeah, it, it is expensive for the taxpayer, not just in terms of uh, the adverse transfer pricing adjustments, um, but also just the time and cost in attempting to rectify, correct this situation and actually work this through with the relevant tax authorities. So it's, it can be extremely labour intensive and, and demanding. Yeah. That's given us a really good picture um, of the issue. Let's try and summarise the key points. What would be the key the key takeaways that you think people should should, should uh, keep in mind? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so the, the the key point is 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 to bear in mind what are we all aiming for? The answer is it is substance, evidence, genuine documentation, so that we can withstand um, and address clearly any questions which may come up. Um, it's it's the point that functional analysis is important, but it's nowhere and nowhere near enough. Um, so the the transfer pricing analysis needs to go hand in hand with the legal design of the transaction, and in fact, economic analysis is essentially meaningless unless the transaction has been accurately defined. Because what are you what are you analysing? Um, and um, by the way, this this doesn't have to mean complex arrangements it just means creating something that is as simple as possible it makes sense is thought through clearly expressed implemented in reality um so re- really that's that's the key message and i guess the follow-up is these arrangements are not set in stone groups are, are, are not trees they they they, they change they, they 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 move and and that therefore the agreements need to be kept updated in many cases even if there's no change in transfer pricing policies there may be other changes in the group, for example, acquisitions, uh, corporate simplification, demergers, whatever, that means the agreements may need to be updated, um, irrespective of the TP policies. Well, thank you. That You've given us a really clear and detailed uh, overview of what is clearly an important uh, area which can have very serious consequences for getting it wrong. So uh, I think people will have found that really enlightening uh, and useful. So uh, but for now, Paul, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Elstian Legal Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. You'll find the contact details on our website, elsianlegal.com, and you'll find more information about the contractual allocation of risk there too, 
in the Training Hub section and on our blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Go to your podcast provider and search for the LCN Legal Podcast. Thank you and goodbye.